The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. On this week's Science for the People, we're looking at the history and science of AIDS and HIV with four expert panelists. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm here with four panelists today to discuss HIV and AIDS. First, we have Dazon Dixon-Jallo, founder and president of Sister Love, established in 1989, and it was the first women's HIV, AIDS, and reproductive justice organization in the southeastern United States. Welcome, Dazon. Good morning. Thank you. Next, we have Terry McGovern, professor at Population and Family Health at the Columbia University Medical Center. Terry founded the HIV Law Project in 1989, where she successfully litigated numerous human rights cases against various U.S. governments. Good to have you here, Terry. Thank you. Good morning. We also have Salim Abdul Karim with us, professor of clinical epidemiology at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. He's a South African clinical infectious diseases epidemiologist who is widely recognized for his research contributions in HIV prevention and treatment. Thanks for being here, Salim. Thank you very much. Good morning. And rounding out the panel is Jonathan Engel, a professor at Baruch College School of Public Affairs who conducts research in the historical Historical Evolution of U.S. Health and Social Welfare Policy. He's the author of The Epidemic, A History of AIDS. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Nice to be here. Good morning. So I guess the first thing we, we really need to discuss is exactly what HIV and AIDS are from a scientific and medical perspective. So who would like to begin? AIDS was first described in 1981 as a syndrome, as a collection of symptoms and conditions that collectively were identified with immune deficiency. And because there was no genetic basis for it, it was the word acquired was added. So we've known that patients can have a hereditary or genetic form of immune deficiency, but this acquired immune deficiency syndrome was quite a unique new disease, and it took different forms. So in the U.S., you're seeing the form of diseases like Kaposi sarcoma and so on, whereas in Africa it was taking on more the flavor of Slim's disease, chronic diarrhea. So AIDS as a whole is a collection of different conditions all falling under the broad rubric that they are caused by immune deficiency, which can be measured in a range of ways, including CD4 counts, that indicate this underlying deficiency that was acquired. HIV, about three and a half years ago, was identified as the virus that was responsible for this immune deficiency. By infecting CD4 cells and systematically destroying them, it led to an immune deficiency. Now, how did we make the connection between HIV and AIDS? So these cases came out of the blue. And so as Salim just said, what AIDS does is it degrades the immune system. But you don't really observe the immune system being degraded. What you observe is the fact that the body can no longer fight off infections, what we call opportunistic infections. So all of a sudden, people who would be normally healthy wind up getting sick with all sorts of odd illnesses. And uh, what we initially saw were young, healthy men, particularly in Los Angeles, but also in New York, who were coming down with very odd cancers and very odd forms of pneumonia, Kaposi sarcoma, PCP pneumonia. 
uh, very, very unusual diseases to be found in young, healthy men. So this was odd. Was the, the question was, were they catching this? Were their were uh, systems being degraded? No one quite knew what it was. But epidemiologically, we could observe that the numbers of young men coming in were off the wall. And in fact, there's a wonderful story by David Ho, who became very, very influential later on in creating a pharmacological intervention. And he was interested in doing infectious disease. He was a young uh, postdoc working in L.A. County Hospital, just sort of looking for a problem which he could commit himself to. And literally the problem walked in the door. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, in 1981, 1982, he was seeing dozens at first and then hundreds of otherwise healthy young men walking in and their bodies were just uh, uh, in terrible shape. So there was an understanding that something was going wrong with the immune system, and then the question was, what was it? Was it bacterial? Was it genetic? Was it virological? And really, we began um, a very concerted worldwide, I don't want to say worldwide effort, but certainly in the U.S. and Europe as well, a number of very prominent virologists and pathogenic disease researchers began to try to look to see what was going on. Was there something going on? There were a number of very prominent people, including uh, people at the NIH here in the U.S. and at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, who began to look at a class of viruses called retroviruses uh, because some of the symptoms looked like other symptoms caused by retroviruses. There were a lot of different theories at the time. But relatively quickly, folks over at the Pasteur Institute isolated what they looked to be a new virus. And the virus made sense. After all, this was a new syndrome. It was a new disease. We know that viruses do attack the immune system. Um, the epidemiology looked like a viral epidemiology. And so once we actually could see the virus in the electron microscope and, uh, uh, and, and uh, scans, um, then we had something to go on to. And then there actually was a little bit of a fight between who discovered first. Was it Americans over at the NIH or uh, folks over in France, and it was settled a little bit, uh, somewhat amicably later on. But I, I, I've always sort of tried to say about AIDS, one of the odd things about AIDS was how quickly we got this. Everyone talks about the extraordinarily slow progress we've made in fighting AIDS. But really, it was under three years, or maybe three and a half years, between the time where we just mysteriously saw young, healthy people uh, disintegrating and degrading, and the time we had actually described uh, a viral cause of this. Well, I think it's wonderful that you um, ha we've heard uh, both Salim and Jonathan really lay out what the scientific uh, evolution of HIV and AIDS have been in terms of what's happened at the community and how HIV and AIDS got connected. And for those of us engaged in work around prevention or just educating the community, dealing with issues around stigma and discrimination for people who were diagnosed um, with HIV or AIDS, the, the issue of connecting the virus to what was known as the syndrome uh, became really important because of the information that we had to share with people. And, and so I think it's important to recognize that once we had the designated virus that we could move literally from talking about uh, the syndrome or the disease and how it how it uh, was represented in people. So we were literally talking about being afraid of people as opposed to being concerned about preventing the transmission of a virus. 
So it gave us an opportunity to really give people something different to latch on to in terms of how they could protect themselves, um, how we could talk about it in the community. The other thing I think is important in terms of uh, identifying uh, HIV and AIDS in the beginning was even into the, and Terry and I have this part of the history, share this part of the history together, is all the way into the early 90s, um, women, particularly women and children, were experiencing a lot of similar symptoms to those of the young men that Jonathan has described. But because they weren't young men, it wasn't associated with the same behaviors as young men. There were plenty of people, especially women, who actually were uh, uh, getting HIV and uh, having AIDS in the 80s weren't being diagnosed. And so it became even more important to hone in on all of the different infections that were considered a part of the AIDS uh, syndrome and how HIV itself was manifesting differently in women's bodies and in children's bodies. So we had to begin talking a lot more about HIV 30 something plus years later in the public health world and often even times in our community conversations, in our advocacy work, we don't even refer to AIDS anymore because HIV is really the culprit that we have to hone in on. HIV is the virus itself is what we can prevent for people who do not uh, already have the symptoms of AIDS or even have the virus. HIV disease is the conversation that we have nowadays simply because I think in large part, scientifically, we have a better understanding of the immune system that we didn't have before. And so we get a chance to talk about HIV in the larger context of immunology. But at the same time, we also can move away from the fear and the stigma that the word AIDS and its initial introduction into the world brought with it that we can actually eliminate some of that stigma associated with AIDS when we focus on the fact that we're fighting a virus and not groups of people that have a very scary disease. Terry, can you talk a bit about why those women and children weren't being diagnosed? Yeah, so I actually uh, went to law school, graduated, and was going to do poverty law in New York City, which meant I worked for something called the Legal Services Program, which was a federally funded legal program that served people who were under the U.S. poverty limit. Um, and we did everything from housing to helping people maneuver, you know, uh, public assistance issues. And um, we started to see a whole lot of very sick people coming in. Uh, I'm talking about like 1988, um, who were uh, predominantly people of color, many women, um, and they were clearly dying and I started to take the cases actually and what had happened is the CDC had identified this syndrome as AIDS, right? And they had identified primarily the opportunistic infections that they were seeing in those healthy young men that Jonathan was talking about. But they kind of weren't thinking too much about the idea that we now understand of converging epidemics, right? Um, that populations that were having tuberculosis, bacterial pneumonia, when they became HIV positive, then those those would be coming back in a stronger form. So um, 
what we were seeing is that the Social Security Administration then took the CDC definition of AIDS and said, these are the people, if you have AIDS, you can get, you know, Social Security disability, you can automatically get Medicaid. The housing programs picked up the definition and said, if you have AIDS, you can get special housing allotments. Um, So these people that were coming in for legal assistance actually had HIV, but all over their medical records, it said HIV positive, but not AIDS. Um, And they were, so they were being denied all of these benefits and they were literally dying without any kind of assistance. Um, So they were seeing things like at that point, bacterial pneumonia, tuberculosis, in women, pelvic inflammatory disease, cervical cancer that was more uh, likely to recur, be more aggressive. So um, we actually ended up, you couldn't win the cases, like usually you'd appeal to get a person Medicaid and disability and there were a number of decisions where uh, people died before, (laughs) they were denied after they had died Um, and it turned out this was a pattern throughout the United States. So we ended up filing a class action about it in 1990. Um, So, you know, this kind of beginning, uh, the beginning where gay men were primarily identified, Haitians also in the U.S. kind of uh, set us off in a misleading direction about the virus. This is Science for the People, and today we're talking about HIV and AIDS. My guests are Terry McGovern, founder of the HIV Law Project, Salim Abdul-Karim, clinical infectious diseases epidemiologist, Jonathan Engel, author of The Epidemic, A History of AIDS, and Dazon Dixon-Jack founder of Sister Love, the first woman's HIV, AIDS, and reproductive justice organization in the southeastern United States. Can I jump in there and just yeah. respond to what Terry said for Absolutely. a second? Absolutely. I, I want to reinforce exactly her point, which was that in many ways, the fact that the, that the disease hit the gay community first was misleading. There was a sense that it was a gay disease. And in fact, before we identified HIV as the virus, there was a question whether this had to do with gut bacteria. After all, gay men have a lot of anal sex where there are all sorts of weird things going on in the biome. And it took a while to realize that, no, this was really just a sexually transmitted disease. It happened to hit the gay community first, the gay male community first, but that it could go into the heterosexual community. One of the the lasting mysteries of AIDS was this. One of the big predictions was AIDS would not be a gay disease. It would move into the general population. The reality is that AIDS in the United States has not moved into the general population. It has stayed largely within the gay male community and the IV drug-using community. I don't want to say exclusively, but largely, heavily disproportionately. It has never become a widespread heterosexual epidemic sexually transmitted disease. By contrast, in large parts of Central and Southern Africa... AIDS really is a wide, a widespread sexually transmitted disease. Um, it, it has not been uh, confined to any one group. And one of the big mysteries is why this happened. We Even to this day, for all the epidemiological data we've collected on this, we don't quite know why AIDS spreads one way in some parts of the world and another way in other parts of the world. We know there are some areas of the world where it's almost exclusively an IV drug-using disease, for example, in Central Asia. Uh, where we see a lot of people using heroin and large kind of group uses of heroin. But we, we really still to this day don't quite know why we're seeing these patterns of spread of AIDS. Uh, it's true we got up really very much on the wrong foot at the beginning. It was understandable. We didn't know what we were dealing with. Uh, but to this day, we're still not quite sure why when people have sex 
and one person is HIV positive and another person is not, why sometimes the, the virus transmits and other times the virus doesn't transmit. Well, and I'm glad you brought up Africa. Can, can someone walk us through, I guess, the trajectory of AIDS in non-Western countries? When we look at the epidemiology of HIV, it's estimated today that there are somewhere in the region of around 38 million people living with HIV. And of those, about 22 million live in, in Africa. The African epidemic is quite substantially different from the epidemics that you see, for example, in Eastern Europe, where it's dominated there by injecting drug use. So in Africa, the epidemic is in the general heterosexual population. And one of the unique characteristics of this epidemic is the high HIV incidence rates in young African women. So if we look at HIV, the number of new HIV infections in women in Africa between the ages of 16 and 24, we find that it's up to about eight times higher than the incidence rate of HIV in men of the same age group. So the epidemic in Africa is largely driven in most of the countries in the southern part of Africa by very high rates of HIV infection in young women. The men get infected some 8 to 10 years later so that eventually when you get to the 35, 40-year-olds, the infection rates are similar. But it's this high incidence in young women. The challenge with the unique spread of HIV uh, through young women is that the technologies that we have to prevent the spread of HIV are really mostly inappropriate and don't offer women the opportunity to protect themselves. So if you take, for example, the traditional ABCs, these uh, decisions about abstinence, about mutual faithfulness, about condoms, are largely in the hands of men. So, for example, a young woman can be monogamous and very faithful to one man, but it's that man's ability to stay faithful that impacts her risk. And the same with condoms. It's very difficult for young women to insist on older men using condoms. So we have a challenge in that the technologies we have are not appropriate for that particular population. And that's what's been driving that epidemic. And that's why it's substantially more severe and a larger component of the global epidemic that we are seeing. So I'm wondering what the what the difference is between, uh, let's say, North America and Africa with the prevention and treatment strategies. So I want uh, to also uh, fall in with what Slim is talking about because, and he's actually in my head, um, with the comments particularly about young women and in the heterosexual context, is that the other unique question that we have to ask, and I think this also falls in with the differences between North America and the global South in particular, is that certain regions of the United States, particularly, for example, here in the Southeastern region, we're still grappling with the question of why, while we perceive the epidemic to be concentrated mostly in urban centers like New York and San Francisco and 
Los Angeles and even here in Atlanta, that almost half of the epidemic in the U.S. is in the South. And it's in the South where there are many social and structural issues that present greater challenges um, to folks who are more vulnerable to contracting HIV. There's more poverty. There's higher incidences of incarceration. We have more prisons in the South than in the rest of the country. We have higher uh, uh, incidences and prevalences of other STDs than in the rest of the country. Lower uh, attainment of education. Um, uh, Lots more poverty and many more rural communities. And so there are large questions that are similar to what's going on in the global South, which with what's going on in the U.S. South. We have actually more heterosexual HIV, particularly in the evidence that there are more women who are infected with HIV in the South collectively than in the rest of the country. So epidemiology doesn't, isn't the only answer to what we know about these unique experiences in different regions, but it's also the social political, economic, and structural conditions in those areas. And if you compare the global South uh, to the to the West or to the northern regions of the world uh, and parallel that with the experiences in the U.S. South to the rest of the United States, there are so many similarities that we can look at that bring some more answers to the question about why this is happening differently in some of these regions. It really is take a look at what's happening in those communities Uh, in those pockets where the epidemic does look more generalized, but it's in certain spots of the country, not nationally. This is Terry. If I could just jump in here too, you know, between after I left the HIV Law Project before joining the Columbia faculty, I was at the Ford Foundation in the, I was the HIV program officer. And um, this was around 2006, I went and the issues in the U.S. around kind of funding formulas. So the South had been kind of up against it because traditionally the funding formulas, I hate to be so lawyeristic, but the policy is very important in this. The funding formulas were very much about numbers of AIDS cases, not numbers of HIV. So the South was actually receiving a lot less federal assistance uh, for the epidemic. Um, Again, this kind of misstep in in the early years really allowed for the epidemic to prosper in lots of communities. Um, to, to, you know, and, and actually what ends up happening a lot when we talk about the issues around low income, poor people, communities of color, uh, women, is we're talking about the age old structural issues of discrimination, power imbalance, um, and those have tended to be left off in the response to the epidemic. Um, uh, under-researched, under-resourced, um, and I think that that is absolutely true, that that's true in parts of the United States, and obviously it's certainly true around, uh, you know, young women in Africa. This is Science for the People, and we'll be back with more on the history and science of HIV and AIDS after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. 
You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People, and I'm Desiree Shell. I've been discussing the science, history, and politics of HIV and AIDS with a panel of experts, including Salim Abdul-Karim, clinical infectious diseases epidemiologist, Jonathan Engel, author of The Epidemic, A History of AIDS, Dazon Dixon-Jallo, founder of Sister Love, and Terry McGovern founder of the HIV Law Project. So one of the things that that I wanted to talk about was, I guess, the evolution of the medications that are used to treat HIV and AIDS. They have definitely come a long way. So what what's the regimen now? So currently, we use a combination of three antiretroviral drugs. They come from two different classes, and they are highly effective. The World Health Organization recommended first line that is the most widely used is a combination of a drug called tenofovir with a drug called 3TC or ifavir, and, um, and the third is efavirenz or neverapine. These three drugs in combination are quite cheap and are available as fixed-dose combinations. We've been able to roll out and make available this, this treatment to the many millions in Africa in that one has to take simply one dose or one tablet once a day. As we reflect on what has happened in the HIV epidemic, one of the most important things has been the way in which the epidemic and the, the being diagnosed with AIDS has shifted from being what was once a death sentence to a situation now where we can manage it as a, as a disease that has impacted on stigma and discrimination. So individuals are much more willing to be tested for HIV, and that's a critical thing, that the human rights of individuals are protected and that we can have individuals who are just coming forward to be tested because testing is so important to access prevention and treatment so that today we are able to, to say that we have reached a situation where we are almost halfway through in terms of treating the 38 million people who need to be on treatment. Now, I understand that uh, that human trials of more than 100 different AIDS vaccines have taken place uh, since researchers proved that HIV caused the disease. Uh, so how how promising is that research? Before you get to the vaccine and the promise of that research, I think it's really important for folks to hone in on what Salim was talking about is actually the result of years of research of understanding not only the human immune system, but also in understanding the life cycle of HIV itself, of the virus. And what many people who weren't close to the epidemic in the earlier days of it may not recall or know is that prior to having what's called the fixed dose regimen where you can get more than one medicine into one tablet, there were, I, I know personally, there were women in my program, folks that we worked with, who could be consuming up to 64, 80 pills a day. That sounds outrageous to folks nowadays, where when we had nothing before us, uh, in the mid-90s, uh, people were still happy to be involved with trying anything. And so physicians were prescribing many different types of medications to address the many different ways that HIV itself attacks the immune system. And so I think people have to understand also 
that what's tricky about the treatment modalities, as well as understanding the vaccine development, is that the virus itself is very complicated and without giving it a personification, very smart in the sense that there are many different stages in the life of an HIV of the virus that give it the power to attach itself to our antibodies and and cause harm. And so we've had to address every stage of development of the virus to have a compound or a drug or something that would that would deplete the opportunity for the virus to either attach itself to your cell, to get into your cell, to change the cell, to replicate in a different formation of the cell, and then to spread itself into the bloodstream. So in in each of those situations, we have had to come up with different responses, different biological responses to address the virus's power um, to invade uh, the immune system. We have treatment now that addresses the virus at each of those different phases in its development. And what's most difficult is getting to the core of how the virus can do all of that at so many different levels, which is why it's been challenging with the development of the vaccine. I think that, and and this gets really heavy into the science, but there have been many starts and stops with development of different compounds, looking at different cells, different types of immunity fighting regimens that might actually provide us the opportunity to prevent the virus through a vaccine. And so the clinical, the basic scientists, the clinical scientists are continually coming up with new ways to find out how to get to the core of the virus's ability to do what it does. And that's what's been challenging in the vaccine world. Just recently, there are at least two or two or three more new compounds or modified compounds that are being looked at. And that we, since we've had a moderately successful uh, vaccine trial in a small group of people in Thailand, we're now looking at how to take the learned lessons from that study, the what's known as the RV144 study, to build upon what we've learned that actually does work. So I think that the future of vaccines is still available to us, uh, whether it's going to be a wholesale preventable vaccine or whether it's going to be a therapeutic vaccine that would essentially render the virus inoperable in people who actually are infected. There are ways to treat the virus in the body with a potential vaccine that people will not be able to infect other folks. But we also have new biomedical prevention strategies for people who are HIV negative to not get HIV now. And this is the best hope that we have right now in lieu of not having a vaccine available to us. And and before people get on the board of you know, it's been 35 years into the epidemic. Why don't we have a vaccine? I, I think it's important to note, and I hear this from so many different virologists and immunologists, that before HIV, we knew a minuscule amount of information about the human immune system and that we've learned in the last 35 years more about the immune system than we've known in the history of medical science. And I think it's important to point that out and to understand that prior to looking for an HIV vaccine, you know, some of the other vaccines that we have that have almost wholesale eliminated different um, viruses 
from polio to yellow fever uh, and other viral uh, diseases is that it sometimes took anywhere from 50 to 100 years to, do, to finally reach the vaccine that would eliminate uh, the disease and the epidemic in huge populations. So I encourage folks to just hang in there, hold on, uh, keep informed about the, the burgeoning science of vaccines because it's still emerging, even though it's 35 years old. So now one of the things that uh, that I was interested in when we started setting up this panel was the the change in public perception of HIV and AIDS uh, since this first started. Can somebody speak to that? I'll take a stab. I'm not sure there's any one answer to that. One of the things that I've noticed is it really has become sort of low-level background noise in this country, in the United States. It's just where I'm most familiar with the epidemic. It seems to be a chronic illness that we live with. It gets managed. People are not particularly frightened of it. I think that the rhetoric of safe sex has really entered into the common parlance. Uh, many, many Americans are just now aware. They're simply more aware than they were a generation ago of sexually transmitted diseases. And they need to protect themselves. They need to have regular checkups. Um, it's interesting how something, it, 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 for, for those who don't remember living through it, people were terrified. I mean, really, America was just transfixed by this epidemic in the early and mid-80s, and people were terrified about it. And although we've never cured it and we have not found uh, a vaccine, we've learned to live with it in this country. Um, and I don't see enormous inspiration to really do better. Uh, I see sort of incremental steps to try to get our combination therapy more effective, more tolerable, to try to get people to be more consistent, to try to get um, earlier diagnoses. But I don't see a huge inspirational war on AIDS um, where there's a sense that this is really a pressing and compelling challenge to us. Uh, if anything, the war still seems to be on cancer. We still seem to be um, very much focused on can we do better with cancer. And AIDS has fallen into the background. I, but I know that that's a very different situation than it is elsewhere in Asia and Africa, so I'll let others speak to that. Well, I think it's also important to point out uh, some of the mixed messages, even in those of us who have been the most fervent around both uh, wanting to prevent HIV for people who are um, not already infected, and while at the same time, uh, really being uh, supportive and sensitive to the role that stigma plays for people who are living with HIV and the fact that we have so many wonderful working treatments that people with HIV are less likely to infect others if they are on their medicines and they have their virus under control. The fact that we have so many good drugs nowadays that keep people living with HIV healthy longer, that we're using the messages around for people living with HIV, that it is not necessarily a death sentence, that you can live well, that we want to fight for your right to live like everybody else who's not HIV infected. And that's a double message when you're talking to some groups and saying you want to do everything in the world to avoid this really horrific virus that could kill you. And then out the other side of our neck, we're telling people with the virus that it's really okay, right. that it's not the worst thing to have HIV. And so that's those mixed messages in and of themselves, I think, have pretty gotten have gotten people pretty tired. Uh, that there's fatigue around the the old conversations of safer sex. Um, that there's uh, a lot of apathy around the advocacy of the needs of people living with HIV because there are so many other competing diseases and social issues that need resources and need to be addressed. 
But at the same time, um, we have to be able to tell the good story of how we ended the epidemic and the, uh, the, the pandemic of HIV by being uh, even more vigilant on our prevention messages, as well as being vigilant on talking about adherence to whatever interventions we know are evidence-based and work. And I say that, for example, one of the uh, one of the uh, newest pieces of news around HIV that's still not even reaching the general population of the U.S. yet is that for the last almost four years now, we have had an approved FDA approved regimen of the same drug that Salim talked about earlier uh, in tenofovir that's available now to people who are not HIV positive, but at substantial risk for becoming HIV. And when we say substantial risk, you have to think of all of the things that increase your opportunity to get HIV. Do you have uh, a significant number of multiple partners with whom you don't use other methods of protection like condoms? You don't know their HIV status. You don't know your HIV status. You might be in a relationship with someone who's living with HIV and not using the current protections that we have like condoms um, That or, or even getting people virally suppressed that we now know that if you take this pill once a day, that you are as unlikely to get HIV as you might be if you were only using a condom. So the new message to people is that we really do need to double check our risk. We don't need to drive the HIV infection higher by uh, assuming that just if I get HIV, I'll still be okay. But at the same time, I think that informing people about the new news. The science is moving so fast and Slim is such an important um, player in the role of how fast the science is moving because he is one of the principal, principal investigators that gave us the proof of the concept that you can provide medicine to people who are HIV negative to prevent HIV, that most people don't even know that this is the news in the world of HIV that really has impact on their day-to-day -day lives. So that's also the new conversation that we need to have here in North America. It certainly is now growing uh, in greater conversations in places like South Africa and Kenya, where the same drug that's been approved in the U.S. has just recently been approved um, for HIV negative populations in those countries. And we hope that it continues to grow because there's going to be, you know, there's a 360 degree need to attack this epidemic. And we are still working our way around that circle. Can I just jump in? I think the uh, the issue, though, with all of this new information and new uh, availability of, of treatment regimens, the issue is access to health care. Um, what is the quality of your health care? Who's going to give you this information? Um, certainly, when we think about, when we look at young women, um, it's often the case that they're not that they're, where they're showing up to get health care, they're not being given the appropriate information. Um, and, you know, obviously the issue of criminalizing LGBT populations in lots of countries, that hurts access to health care. There's a lot of fear. So intertwined in these issues are issues of stigma, discrimination, and access to health care. You're listening to Science for the People, and my guests on today's panel are Jonathan Engel, author of The Epidemic, A History of AIDS, Dazon Dixon-Jello, 
founder of Sister Love, Terry McGovern, founder of the HIV Law Project, and Salim Abdul-Karim, clinical infectious diseases epidemiologist. So we've been talking about sort of the the interconnectedness of the the politics of the time um, and and the rise of this disease. So do you think that we made advances in medical treatment because the public and political perspective has changed? Or do you think that advancements in treatment changed the public and policy perspective? When we think back as to how most of the advances occurred in science, they were largely driven because of the large amount of advocacy, community involvement, and the way in which HIV stood out as a disease that was integral to the fight for equality and justice and human rights. So with that came the ability of scientists to directly interface with patients. It came that activists were now directly demanding from researchers. So there's no question in my mind that that activism, that mobilization, and those demands that were placed drove the agenda and forced all of the science to increase its pace. Uh, I'm just thinking about your comment, did the science drive the politics or did the politics drive the science? So I can't speak recently, but I can tell you back in the 1980s and 1990s, the scientific process, the investigatory process, actually worked as it should. Um, More money was pumped into this. Congress released funds to the Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases over at the NIH. The NIH made it clear that this was a priority. Researchers applied for funds through uh, uh, calls for proposals. Normal science was done in labs. It was supported, and breakthroughs were made. To a large degree, the scientific community, I think, was insulated from the politics of this. This was an interesting challenge. It was a compelling challenge. It was a well-funded challenge. And and I would even go farther, if you look at uh, what could have happened, how the disease could have been politicized early on. Remember, at the time Ronald Reagan was president, he was a self-described social conservative. He was obviously uncomfortable talking openly about sexuality, talking openly about homosexuality. And yet one of the interesting aspects of the epidemic was that Reagan and the Reagan White House really did not intervene in normal science. There's really no evidence that there was an effort out of the White House to block research, to block publicity. In fact, ultimately, the White House supported C. Everett Koop, the Surgeon General at the time, who, although he was a social conservative and a devout Christian, was very, very aggressive in publicizing the dangers of AIDS and how to prevent AIDS. So if if there's anything to be uh, learned from the history here, it was that at a time of need, the politicians actually got out of the way. Uh, I don't want to say totally out of the way. Obviously, there was a lot of homophobia and there was some panic. But to a, to a large degree, the system worked. The, uh, the scientific and medical communities were largely, in this country, insulated from the pressure of politics. And that's continued up until the present time, even with all of the extraordinary levels of right-wing rhetoric and uh, and the real almost kind of regressive social vision for this country, we have not seen the scientific agenda and the scientific research agenda attacked. And e- even if you watch last night's debate, for example, any of the last six Republican debates, we, we don't ever hear the issue of science come up. Uh, 
this just does not seem to be an area where the American people want politicians to go. I was going to respond, but I think I'll, I might defer to you being a little bit closer to the activist history. Uh, we both are, you know, old members of ACT UP. And so I have some pushback to, to the, um, level of camaraderie that I, that I'm feel free, feel free. Um, and, and so I want to hear Terry and then I will, uh, piggyback on that. Well, I mean, just, uh, you know, interestingly, so all of these, uh, all of these clients were coming in, uh, you know, again, largely people of color, women, uh, gay men of color and had all these, they were dying of AIDS, but they weren't able to get the diagnosis of AIDS, right? And my greatest allies in this were their doctors, who were the doctors who staffed, um, you know, the the city clinics. Uh, and they were seeing the same phenomenon, that this AIDS definition actually was excluding uh, huge numbers of people who were dying of AIDS. Um, and we, they, there actually hadn't been adequate studies that that came out of the CDC of these kind of issues, these concur- concurrent epidemic issues. So in order to win the lawsuit, which in fact we did, uh, we had to get the doctors to actually publish what they were seeing, back to recurrent bacterial pneumonia, more aggressive cervical cancer, people with lower than 500 CD ca- CD4 counts um, dying of HIV-related disease but not ever getting AIDS. Um, meanwhile, there was this huge activist movement uh, led by HIV-positive women to expand the AIDS definition because they were seeing and talking about the same things. So um, we had this litigation at the same time as this there was this massive kind of um you know effort on the on the part of many people all around the country to expand the aids definition interestingly the american medical association joined the lawsuit um to push the science so i would agree with the first set of comments that i think pretty much everything in this epidemic has been driven by activist advocacy. I think scientists, uh, there were certainly great scientists from the beginning doing the work, interested in doing the work, but they needed the push and the injection of what was actually happening on the outside. Um, early on, we had lots of very, very tense meetings with epidemiologists saying, we're trying to follow this, we're trying to follow this, you know, epidemiological projection here. And to put anybody with fewer than 500 T, t- cells or aggressive cervical cancer or bacterial pneumonia or TB in this grouping is going to skew our whole, you know, kind of survey. Um, and on the outside, the activists were saying, we don't care. We People are dying without basic benefits and without medication and without being diagnosed. I mean, the other part of this is because of the perceptions, many of the clients that I saw were getting diagnosed very, very late in the disease. And of course, this continues in lots of parts all throughout the world uh, based on misperceptions. But I'll stop there. I'm sure Dazon will add. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I think that it... Uh comes back to the to the uh, comment I made earlier about moving beyond looking at the epidemiology and the clinical science of it and making sure that the social, the structural, the political, and the economic impediments that are in front of us for or have been in front of us in terms of addressing this epidemic are are also key drivers in how we've made change. So I, I think, for example, uh, from 
the beginning of it that many scientists, and this is in some of the conversations, even with folks like Dr. Tony Fauci, who's a hero in this work and who has been in it for, you know, since day one, almost of the epidemic as a, as a clinician, as well as a researcher, and now the head of it at the, the National Institutes of Health, is that scientists were still attacking it uh, through some of the tried and true traditional status quo approaches um, to the virology and to the basic science and to discovering uh, the treatments that might be needed or looking for the cure. And what was different about AIDS was that people were dying within sometimes days, weeks, if not months of diagnosis. And so like Terry said, activists were basically uh, learning for ourselves the science so that we could sit with um, the researchers as well as the pharmaceutical uh, research community to say, you have to change the paradigm on how you do this work, that we need better, faster, stronger, safer science to get us the drugs that we need faster, to get us to the end of the suffering, because by the time you get to where you're going, there will be nobody left to treat. And at the same time, um, we had to work within the political realm uh, to get folks to understand that the science wasn't the only challenge to addressing HIV because it was so politicized from the beginning. Everything about uh, the American response to HIV and AIDS first had to deal with homophobia, had to deal with um, uh, uh, gender and gender differences and had to deal with sexism. And, you know, because of how we're looking at the virus now, we're still addressing issues of race and class and access to health care. It is by no uh, accident that we have what we call a new epidemic, for example, in the U.S. South. Right. Because we do not have the investment from our political leaders in the South that they do not respond to activism in the same way that the federal government does, that we do not have the same level of access to treatment. We don't have the same level of access to resources um, in terms of housing, in terms of education, comprehensive sex information, and, and even in terms of uh, access to the research. I give you an example. We have one of the largest longitudinal ongoing studies in the women's interagency HIV study. Over 20,000 women over 20 years uh, living with HIV engaged in a lifetime study of how HIV manifests itself in women. It wasn't until 2013 that we actually had clinical research sites in the southern region in this women's HIV study that's a national study that's been going on since the early 90s. So I, I just, I don't disagree that um, we have amazing individuals who have been dedicated, uh, scientists, researchers, activists, and advocates, and people living with HIV in particular, who have found ways to work together um, from the beginning of the epidemic, but it has not been without much challenge, without a lot of uh, pushback and without a lot of perseverance and diligence to holding people's feet to the fire. And, and I think that it's a telltale sign that we still have the need to be active, um, to motivate scientists uh, in the same way we did in the early days. So what I would say is I'm not confused that I think 
because of the AIDS activism, we galvanized changes in the U.S. health system writ large. We managed to get uh, specific funding to make sure that people who were living with AIDS got the resources for healthcare that they needed in a much faster way through our Ryan White, our National Ryan White Care Act. We made sure that NIH fast-tracked some of its own research methodologies to get to answers faster. I think that the activist community did drive a lot of the social and political work around HIV early on, but now that the science is moving so fast and it's coming up with such good results that are impactful for so many more people, the advocacy world and the communities uh, that have been involved in that for so long have, I think, because of some of those same issues of apathy that we just talked about uh, several minutes ago, that we don't have the same level of engagement of advocates and activists with the scientists and the policymakers, simply because the science is moving so fast and the advocacy has yet to catch up. Dazon, you mentioned the uh, the social and and economic and political impediments, but uh, what about the legal impediments? I'm I'm specifically thinking of the laws that are still in place in 33 U.S. states where there are um, they've criminalized potential HIV ex- exposure. I'm just wondering about people's perspectives on that. You know, this is Terry. Obviously, uh, there, you know, there's states where, you know, you don't actually have to transmit the virus. There's been all kinds of kind of crazy, uh, law, crazy, uh, you know, arrests made under these criminalization statutes. But this is also a huge problem throughout the world. It's not just the U.S. Um, if you, if you criminalize either a status, i.e., the person is LGBT and that's criminalized, or you criminalize transmission, you are going to have all kinds of misapplication. Um, You're going to have all kinds of fear about, you know, kind of coming forward and identifying as oneself as HIV positive. Um, so, so the law, and, and I would say the criminalization laws are an element, but when you, when you talk, when you look at young women around the world, so are laws around inheritance, so are laws around ability to access contraceptive care, so are laws about, uh, early marriage. Um, so the legal system has huge impacts on this epidemic in many different ways, and certainly, the criminalization of HIV transmission is completely unhelpful in terms of addressing, uh, you know, the the public health dimensions of the epidemic. Yeah, I mean, um, I live in a state where the HIV criminalization statutes are the same as they've been since 1990 uh, or 1991. And uh, what's critical for folks to understand is that similar to when I said that the advocacy hasn't caught up with the science, neither have the legal statutes, right? And and so um, I use, I would imbue the, the social context in the sense that when the Denver principles yeah. took place and we could talk about the fact that there are no AIDS victims, um, the, the real notion, uh, not only around, uh, around self-determination and ending stigma and discrimination against people living with HIV, there's also the notion that if someone is identified as a victim, that that means you have to identify someone as a perpetrator. Right. And and when you do that, that means you wholesale take an entire population of people who are living with an infection that is wholly preventable by both people who are involved in the 
contact situation that also at this point is wholly treatable to the point where it cannot be transmitted by someone who is infected, that it no longer is necessary to identify victims and perpetrators. It's important to identify how the virus is transmitted and how people are holding ourselves accountable to understanding the information and being able to access the education and the resources and tools we need to protect ourselves and our loved ones. So, for example, where we might have looked at people who are living with HIV and know their status and get involved um, with partners who are not living with HIV, um, and it's only about sex. There haven't been, for example, people who are injection drug users who contracted HIV um, through needle or through syringe um, uh, sharing uh, have been held to the same degree around sharing needles for HIV transmission uh, in terms of uh, criminalization, as have those same people have been held accountable for being sexually uh, intimate with people. So the stigma around sex uh, creeps into the law, into the legal situation. But at the end of the day, when you have pre-exposure prophylaxis, when you have post-exposure prophylaxis, when you have treatment as prevention, you can no longer hold one party responsible for an HIV transmission event. And you should not be able to process or prosecute someone legally because they have a disease that anyone has the opportunity now to prevent for themselves. And unfortunately, we are completely out of time. This uh, this was wonderful. Thank you very much, all of you, for being here today. Thank you Thank very you. much. for uh, Thank you. It. Thank you. We've linked to all of our panelists on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Also on our site are links to Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, so that you can follow all the show news and upcoming episodes. And if you're a new listener, why not click the iTunes link where you can subscribe to the show or listen to all of the past episodes that you missed. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, click the link to Patreon, where we will happily accept your financial support and we'll provide all sorts of extras in appreciation. That's it for today, but we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell.